Would you like to turn to Ruth? The book of Ruth in the Old Testament, chapter 2 or chapter 1, whichever you like. Um, I'll give you the option there. You can turn to one or other. Because we're going to look at both. But I'm going to read from chapter 2. Um, it would be lovely to read chapters 1 and 2 as well. Um, I was already scheduled to come next week and have the joy of coming on my our monthly visit once this month, but I have the additional joy of coming this week as well. So I thought we'd look at the person of Boaz in the book of Ruth over two weeks. So we won't deal with the whole book in one go, but look at um, the story of Boaz in the book of Ruth over the next, well, this week and next week. So let me give you the, um, the story so far in Ruth 1, and then we'll read from chapter 2. It's set in the book of Judges, a depressing time of Israelite history, and a guy called Elimelech takes his family, his wife and two sons, um, away from Israel because there's a famine. The land flowing with milk and honey is now a dust bowl because of disobedience. If you read the book of Judges, you know what happens in those things. Instead of staying around, he goes and takes his family to a nearby country where the grass is obviously looking a lot greener over Moab way. However, to save his family that pain, he stays there and he dies and his sons who marry Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth, also die. Naomi hears that things are going better in Israel, so she heads back but says to her daughters-in-law, look, I've got nothing for you, so you're better off here with your families. Orpah decides to return to her family, but Ruth says, no, I've become part of your family, so I want to stay part of your family. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. And so Ruth and Naomi arrive back in Bethlehem at the time of the barley harvest, just as it's beginning. Chapter 2, then, verse 1. Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side from the clan of Elimelech, a man of standing whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, Let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favour. Naomi said to her, Go ahead, my daughter. So she went out and began to glean in the fields behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she found herself working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the land clan of Elimelech. Just then Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they called back. Boaz asked the foreman of his harvesters, Whose young woman is that? The foreman replied, She is a Moabitess who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She went into the field and has worked steadily from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So Boaz said to Ruth, My daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field, and don't go away from here. Stay here with my servant girls. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the girls. I've told the men not to touch you. And whenever you're thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground. She exclaimed, Why have I found such favour in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? Boaz replied, I have been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people you didn't know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May he be rich, you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel. 
under whose wings you have come to take refuge. May I continue to find favour in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You have given me comfort and have spoken kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servant girls. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come over here, have some bread and dip it in the wine vinegar. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men, Even if she gathers among the sheaves, don't embarrass her. Rather, pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up, and don't rebuke her. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she threshed the barley she had gathered, and it amounted to about an ephah. And if you, like me, don't know what an ephah is, that's about three-fifths of a bushel. If you don't know what a bushel is, that's about 22 litres, my NIV helpfully tells me. She hurried back, she carried it back to town, and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left over after she had eaten enough. Her mother-in-law asked her, Where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Then Ruth said, told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she had been working. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz, she said. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. She added, that man is our close relative. He is one of our kinsmen redeemers. Then Ruth the Moabitess said, he even said to me, stay with my workers until they finish harvesting all my grain. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it would be good for you, my daughter, to go with his girls, because in someone else's field you might be harmed. So Ruth stayed close to the servant girls of Boaz to glean until the barley and wheat harvests were finished, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Familiar story, the joy of reading passages of scripture that are well known to people like you is that it's a refreshment story, isn't it? A story you know very well. It's a powerful story. It is, some people say, a love story, but it's not a romance. There's no sentiment in that sense here. It is a very powerful story. But I want to pick up, not Ruth so much as Boaz, um, her husband-to-be. The book, of course, is all about Naomi. It's not about Ruth, it's not about Boaz, it's about Naomi. It starts with Naomi. Naomi is in every single chapter, and it finishes with Naomi. She's the dominant character all the way through. But Ruth gets the, the mention at the beginning. May the 2nd, barely a month ago, was local elections day, wasn't it? No doubt you took your civic responsibilities seriously and you considered what kind of attitude that honours God and voted according to what you saw the future was best for our country. But many people find it difficult to go out in such a time because they say, what difference does one person make? What difference does one vote make? In 1645, one vote gave Oliver Cromwell control of England. In 1649, one vote caused Charles I of England to be executed. In 1776, one vote gave America the English language instead of the German language. In 1875, one vote changed France from a monarchy to a republic. In 1923, one vote gave Adolf Hitler control of the Nazi party. Never think one vote doesn't make much difference. We can make a difference even on the political scene. 
But we wonder, do our lives really count in the ultimate scheme of the great big things? And the answer from the Bible is a resounding, yes, they do. I love these stories about ordinary people. The Bible is written in such a way that God tells his story through the stories of people in the Bible. Sometimes prominent people are passed over very briefly since they only play a small part in God's purposes. But minor people, ordinary people like you and me, are sometimes mentioned at length because for all their apparent insignificance, they catch something of the heart of God and live accordingly. Boaz and Ruth were two such people, ordinary people, but destined to play a significant part in the history of the world. And here's the rub. They never knew it at the time. Now we love to know what significance our lives make. We hope that Lawrence will be able to bear a very godly, good influence and see it in local election and local parliaments. But most of us don't have that joy. Do our lives really count? Well, the story of a book like Ruth, showing us as it does the story of two ordinary people mixed up together, shows that ordinary lives can count extraordinarily. So what is it that makes his life so important? What is it about Boaz, as about Ruth, that God th deems it necessary to give a whole book to the outworking of their lives? Well, King David is called by God, no less, as a man after my own heart. He will do, says God, everything I want him to do. And on that definition of a man after my own heart, if that's a correct understanding of that verse, and I'd suggest to you that Boaz also is a man after God's own heart, because as I will hope to show you over today and next week, he's a man who does what God wants him to do. Not in extraordinary ways, that's the whole significance of his life, in the ordinary round of routine stuff that people get involved in, in life. What are you facing this week? Probably the same as you faced last week and the week before and the week before that. It can get very repetitive. Giving notices can be very difficult because they are the same notices every week. And living life to the glory of God can be difficult because it's the same life every week. And we long for difference. But that's the whole point. Living an ordinary life to the glory of God. One of the most significant ways was that he expressed his love for God in every area of life. He did not reserve holiness for the spiritual times of life. So I want to pick up four areas of obedience, two this week and two next week. Here's the first one, and it comes from chapter 1, which we didn't read, and in which Boaz is not mentioned. But he's there in the story. Here's the first point for you this morning, just two. So manageable this morning, not three points, but just two points for you. Here's the first one. Boaz stayed in the place of his calling even when the times became hard. We live in a society where if life gets difficult, people just back off and change. In every area of life, they can't hack it, they just change. Gone are the days of perseverance and commitment and other things that used to be words that expressed how people did. And it's for all sorts of reasons. Now life has become so insecure that people haven't got jobs for life. So people 
leave their job more quickly than others. But other times of life, people were committed to working in a certain organisation. They would live in it, working it all their lives. But Boaz was the kind of guy who stayed where he had been called, however hard it got. We're told that Boaz was a son of Rahab, her of infamy in the city of Jericho. You read her story in Joshua chapter 2. She was a Canaanite living in the city of, jo of Jericho when Joshua and his army arrived to take it, together with the rest of the land promised to God by God to his people. And she threw herself on the mercy of God, was unharmed in the ensuing battle, was brought out with her whole family and was gathered into the Israelite community. Salmon, we're told, became Boaz's father. Whether Salmon had had an illicit liaison with a prostitute before they were married and Boaz was the result, or whether Salmon married her after she had been incorporated into Israelite history, we're not told. But nonetheless, Boaz was born and he embraced the nation of his mother completely and lived in the land not as a renegade Canaanite but as a natural Israelite. Joshua and the others had been called by God to live in the land. Rahab therefore accepted that calling to stay in her land, called to be part of the people of God there. And Boaz accepted and embraced the same calling. Joshua and the others had travelled to that point. Boaz had been born there. But this was now his calling. But famine struck the land. Others chose to go. Among them, Elimelech. People have a choice. When the famine struck, what will they do? Stay or go? Life would become very difficult in a famine, as you can read from the book of Judges. Elimelech, we're told, decided that it was too tough. He'd had enough of the famine. He'd had enough of seeing hard life. He didn't want to see his family suffer, so he decided to go to Moab and live out the famine in another productive land and then come back when times were easier. But Boaz didn't. He chose to stay. God had called him there, not physically by geography, but by bringing him to birth there, and he accepted that place of calling. As a landowner, he would be severely affected by the famine. He had employees to consider. I've spoken to one or two Christian businessmen who at different times in their businesses have had to let people go, as the saying goes. And they said it was the hardest single thing they've ever had to do. It's not easy to be someone who has obligations towards other people. But he chose to stay, even though it would be hard and taxing. Difficulties of life, and there are many, aren't there? Don't form my character, they reveal my character. And how I respond to that forms my character. This is the land promised to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. This is the land Moses brought the people out of Egypt to inherit. This is the land Joshua fought to conquer. And this is a Boaz adopted land that is not about to leave no matter how tempting the circumstances. So this part of his life speaks to us so powerfully of a person who is persevering in the place of his calling. 
Life has its ups. We hope we have some of those. But it also has its downs. And in those down times, we can be tempted to back away, walk away, do something else that's more interesting. But Boaz was not that kind of guy. This was the place he'd been called to and he was going to stay here. He'd been called to be a farmer. So to live as a godly man in the area of agriculture, day by day, every day, all week. He was a man who expressed his godliness, not on high days and holidays, but on every part of his day, on every part of his week. When we've been called somewhere by God, our commitment to him is expressed in our willingness to stay in that place until he calls us away. Which he does, of course. People come and go. I've moved a lot of times in my life. I dare say you have too. Feeling some of the time at least that it's been a call of God. I dare say some of it wasn't, but I thought it was. So I was responding to what I understood to be the will of God. But stay where you've been called until you're called away. When we've been called to a task by God, our commitment to him is demonstrated by our willingness to stick to that task until it is completed, as it one day will do, in which case we can move on from other things. So it's staying in the place of our calling and sticking to the task of our calling. Walking away solves nothing in the long run. Elimelech died as a refugee, as his sons died as refugees, leaving his wife and daughters-in-law bereft and poor in a land not their own. He had hoped to spare them pain, but instead heaped pain upon them. Running away from things does not resolve the issue. Sticking around is not an easy option, but in the long run it is the right option. So his obedience and staying will result in a wonderful outcome. Here's the second one. So he's a man who stays in the place of his calling no matter how hard it becomes. He also obeys the obligations to God's word even when it is costly. He obeys his obligations to God's word even when it's costly. And this is what we find in chapter 2. It's all very well to stay, as did most of the nation, but at what cost? Well, Others abandoned God. Let me remind you what it says at the beginning of the book of Judges as the writer of the book of Judges wants to tell us the kind of atmosphere of the Judges. It says this in chapter 2, verse 11. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They provoked the Lord to anger because they forsook him and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. So although most people, I think we would be right in saying, most people stayed in the land, as did Boaz, most of them abandoned God. As times got harder, they turned away from God and served the Baals of the people round about. They just wanted to do the easy thing. But Boaz was not made of that sort of stuff. So while the book of Ruth shows us that there are exceptions, I guess we have to understand that they were in the minority. So far from living a distinctive lifestyle, the people are now living a lifestyle that is identical to the people around them, choosing the easy route of compromise and idolatry. But Boaz keeps faith with God. And this is the way the stories are written. 
We're not told this in black and white terms. The writer assumes we know these things. He doesn't say, Boaz did this because it says in Leviticus that he should have done it. And therefore he did this the next day because it says in Deuteronomy he should have done it. It doesn't say that. The writer assumes we've read Deuteronomy. He assumes we've read Leviticus. He assumes we know what Boaz should do. So as he tells us what he does, we join the dots together and see this man living a godly life. The law, if you read it, and you find it given in both Deuteronomy 5 and following, and Exodus 20 and following, much more than the Ten Commandments. But it's like the Ten Commandments are the core, and the rest is the extrapolation of those Ten Commandments. But if you read it with any kind of attention to detail, you'll find it covered just about every single detail of life. There was no aspect of life of any kind of life that was outside the scope of God's interest. At no point could Israelites say, well, how I build my buildings doesn't matter to God. How I look after my animals doesn't matter to God. Because the Lord told them that it did. Even to the point where it said, after six years, you let your land lie fallow. Give it a rest. I will make sure you'll have enough food, but you let the land lie fallow. They never did it. So the land had to be given its Sabbath years many years later when the people were taken physically from the land. And for 70 years the land had its Sabbaths. God says, I wanted you to give the land Sabbath. Even in the way they cared for the ground they lived on was a matter of concern to God. So there was no spiritual or sacred divide. Nothing was outside the scope of God's interest. Now this means that this is costly to Boaz, because in the light of the recent famine, there's less to go around. But, as a landowner, he was obliged by the law to ensure he did not harvest his fields in such a way that nothing was left behind. He was obligated by the letter of the law to leave some for those who had nothing, which included the widow, the orphan, and the foreigner. And, of course, Ruth comes into two of those categories. He's in, commanded to ensure that at harvest time he left some gleanings for the alien and the poor. He was obliged to be open-handed towards the poor. Don't you be grasping, says the law, and hold it all to yourself. You be open-handed, generous-hearted towards others who have less than you. Now, I don't want you to get the way, go away with the impression that Boaz was doing it out of a sense of obligation. Not far from it. Because when you first thing you hear Boaz say, and that's always a key in a story written in the Bible, the first thing that anyone ever says is very significant. And the first thing he says is in verse 4, chapter 2. He says, the Lord be with you. That's his first opening statement as this chap records this book. And it tells us the character of Boaz. This isn't a man who keeps the letter of the law because he has to. This is a man who keeps the spirit of the law because he wants to. He wants to honour God. So that even the way he greets his workers, the first thing he says is, the Lord be with you. And their response? The Lord bless you. This is a man who knows how to look after his workers, who brings, as it were, his godliness into every area of life, not least the relationship with, with those people who actually he pays to work for him. He's concerned about people. Who's 
Young woman is that, he says. Why would he care about who's in his field? He's a landowner. That's a foreman's job. But he cares about the people. He wants to know who she is. And he gets a response from a foreman who's found out. Because the foreman knows what his boss is like. He knows his boss will want to know who this woman is. So he's found out about her. This speaks of a very rich relationship. He goes far beyond what the law requires, offering Ruth not just the gleanings, but when it comes to lunchtime, a lunch as well, and a ready supply of water anytime she wants, and goes beyond it and says, even when she's picking stuff up from around the stooks of corn, you make sure she's got something to pick up, because she's not run out. This is a generous-hearted man who's fulfilling the obligations of the law, not because he has to, but because he wants to, because he wants to bring honour and glory to God. So you read that, and it's a lovely chapter to read, isn't it? This man who cares about the weak and the poor, a man who himself is probably wondering how it's all coming together. Well, okay, the famine's over now, the harvest is coming, and everything's good and fine, but who knows when the next famine might be? And Jesus will tell a story later on, later on, about a rich man who has fantastic resources, who has a very good harvest, even better than usual, who wants to put it all in his barns, not share it with others, but all in his barns to keep him against a rainy day. He does it very selfishly, and he used him as an illustration of a foolish man. Now, clearly, Jesus wasn't just dreaming that kind of person up out of his head. There were those kind of people stockpiling it. The more they have, the more they want. But Boaz was not that kind of guy. He had been blessed by God and he wanted to share those blessings with others. He was obliged to do this by the law, but he wanted to fulfill it because of the spirit of the law. He wanted to do what God would do. This is a man who knew how to honour God in his ordinary relationships. Here's a little something from Mother Teresa. You remember her? Speaking about service, she said this, people are unreasonable, illogical, and self-centered. Love them anyway. If you do good, people will accuse you of ulterior motives. Do good anyway. If you are successful, you win false friends and true enemies. Succeed anyway. The good you do will be forgotten tomorrow. Do good anyway. What you have spent years building may be destroyed overnight. Build anyway. People really need help but may attack you if you help them. Help people anyway. Give the world the best you have and you will get kicked in the teeth. Give the world the best you have anyway. There's a woman who served not because of the benefits that would accrue to her, but because it came from a heart that just wanted to love God. I feel tempted to go on with the other bits of Boaz, but we've left his life hanging in the balance. We'll stop there. This lovely guy, and Boaz is one of my heroes of the Bible, when an ordinary man, living out an ordinary life, will bring about an extraordinary outcome about which he will never know in this life. So as you head off into another week, which is probably much the same shame, much the same shape, as last week was, as you cover much the same stuff as you did last week, and you wonder, is it always going to be like this? You can live those lives to the glory of God in the ordinary way. But God will gloss over the histories of kings, but pick out ordinary people and say, 
these lives really matter to me as people live out ordinary lives to the glory of God. So do what you face this week with an eye to worshipping God. Serve him with gladness. Become mighty men and women of God in whatever area of life. And whether you see the benefit or ever see the benefit or other people see the benefit is really neither here nor there. Serve the Lord with gladness and let him take joy in what you do. And as you do what you do, don't do it just because the Lord's told you to do it and therefore you must do it. But do it because this brings pleasure to God. Pleasure and honour to God. Little boy playing football at school with his friends against the other team, 10-year-old boy, scores a goal and immediately looks up and says, Look, Lord Jesus, look, I scored! There's a kid who knows that God is interested in everything about life. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that we don't have to be extraordinary people for you are an extraordinary God. And our lives don't have to be extraordinary because the ordinary in your hands becomes very significant. So as we face things today, many of which we faced before, as we go through routine matters, <clears throat> many of which we've gone through before, and perhaps face things that we'll, we'd rather not face this week, we ask that with the filling of your Spirit, being as full of him as we possibly can be, living the life that Jesus has given to us, this life that is life indeed, life in all its fullness, we may be able to live to the glory of God. Help us, Lord, to transform even the most mundane thing this week into an act of worship to you. That whatever else may be the outcome, we bring pleasure to you. Not only by what we do, but by the attitude in which we do it. So let us, Lord, serve you with gladness this week and bring joy to your heart and blessing to others. In Jesus' name, amen.